take me right back to the trap. Jack, choose. Batter up. Hear that call? The time has come for one and all to listen to the A League of Their Own Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Carolyn Bergier. Thank you for joining me in the stands for this very exciting recap of Episode 3, titled The Cutoff. It's written by Desta Tedros-Ref and directed by Jamie Babbitt. To dive deep into this episode, I recruited the person who wrote it. She's previously written for shows like The Grand Hotel and The Last Tycoon. And in addition to being a writer for the show, she also serves as an executive producer on A League of Their Own. Coming up to the plate, it's the storyline slugger, Desta Tedros Raff. Desta, it's so great. What an honor to have you here. It makes me so excited to have writers recapping the episode that they wrote. Have you ever done anything like that before? First time. I'm a noob. I'm excited for it. Love it. Well, this is our first time meeting, so I would love to learn a little bit more about you and how you came into this writer's room. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I have been a writer for a few years. I was. It's funny. I'm like was originally a lawyer before I transitioned into a writer. Really? Yeah. It's also it's always such a weird story. I was like literally living in like doing like social justice work, living in the Mississippi Delta, and I went from there kind of directly into a writer's room, which is a whole nother story. Um, but I just have like lived in a lot of like different spaces in different worlds. But for this show, particularly kind of the way I came on, I mean, just the way a lot of writers are brought in. Actually, um, Haley Waringo, who's one of the uh, executive producers, who's fantastic and has so much to do with like what the show really is um, and its amazingness, uh, is like really good friends with my agent and had was like, knew they were looking for someone and reached out to him. And this I had heard when they released the announcement for a league, I was on another show. And I was just, I'll just be transparent. I was on law and order organized crime because I thought I could change the system from inside. Like they were like looking for, like they had a white guy who got like called out on like Twitter for like being anti-BLM. So they're like, we need to put a black person in there. And I was like, maybe I can go inside and change the system from within. And then after like six months, I was just like, oh God, get me out of here. Oh no. I've but, um, only seen one episode just for Jennifer Beals. And then I was yeah, like, yeah, get out of there. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I was like, um, so this opportunity came up and I thought it had already passed because I had seen when the announcement came out when I was on this other show and I loved the movie and I was like so excited for the possibility of a show. But I just, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, that ship has sailed. Yeah. And have it come up. I was like, oh, my God. Yes. Like, whatever. Please take me. Um, so I just started as a show. I started on the show as a writer um, and we like did the whole writer's room. And then I went uh, with Pit- I went to we filmed in Pittsburgh with Will and Abby to Pittsburgh for production and was there the whole way. And then um, transitioned into sort of like from a writer to an EP kind of helping to sort of like uh, assisting in all sort of like the production duties and helping to run it. Amazing. Wow. I'm fascinated with this lawyer to writer story because I, I do stand up comedy and there there is kind of like a surprising or maybe not surprisingly large number of like lawyers turned bad comics. <laughs> no, I'm I'm on a show tonight with somebody who was um, like a, a war crimes lawyer for the U.N., and wow, that's dope. And then she quit that to do stand up full time. I feel like a lot of lawyers are like frustrated. Like what makes you like go to law school is that you're success, success driven and risk averse. Yeah. So like, and it's like a very straightforward. It's like, if I do this, I will be successful. Here is a path. Like here are the, like I, I can 
see where it's going. There are steps. Um, but a lot of people are like frustrated creatives. Like I was like always interested in like film and writing and kind of dabbled a bit when I went to law school. So I had some like some of that stuff on my resume. So I want to like interview for law jobs. People wouldn't want to talk to me about the work. They would be well, like, they'd be like, well, you know, like I have a band. <laughs> or I'm really like working on my novel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Law being like, okay. Right. Um, so I think that's actually pretty typical. You like reach either a breaking point. I mean, some people go to law school and love the law, but I do think some people reach like a breaking point where you're either like, I can't do this anymore. Like life's too short. I need to like pursue what I want. Like, right. Creative spirit. Or you like reach a point where you've paid off enough of your student loans that you can go, go do that. Right. Like, <laughs> Uh, what's your sign? I am a Libra. Okay. Just based on the way you were describing the being risk averse. And if I do that, I get that. I'm like, "Mm, do I smell a Capricorn? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually a big thing in the writer's room because I am, this is probably controversial, so anti-astrology. I but like every goddamn person in our room was like, what is it, cosine? Oh yeah, co-star, co-star. So you were all on co-star. They were all on co-star, and I would just roll my eyes. (laughs) Like one of the writers would actively pitch and put into scripts like astrology jokes just to just sanaz just to piss me off. I did. Um, I don't remember which episode, but there was some uh, astrology talk. I'm like, that's how you know there were there were lesbians in the room. <laughs> Not this type of lesbian. <laughs> this type of lesbians just like, oh, brother. I've only come to it very recently, and mostly because my co-host for my other podcast was like so into it. I'm like just so I can understand the language I need to, to get on board. It's that's not fair. gonna, yeah. <laughs> well, that's also like, I always feel like that, that is always someone who's with astrology. They're like, what are you? And I'll be like, what do you think I am? And then it's like, you see them, it's like, well, you could be this and you could be that. And like, whenever it's wrong, it's like, oh no, 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 no. But like, <laughs> I thought you were like a Scorpio, but you're like a Scorpio rising. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> star sun like in in the third quadrant of I was just like what I know the the work people will do to like confirm (laughs) no 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 no, that's right I I get it I get it it must be in your fourth house yeah it's like it's like a reverse QAnon like watching like the way people will like try to make it work Oh, I love that. Well, you did mention that you love the film. Tell me a little bit more about your relationship to the 1992 film. When did you see it? I, I mean, I definitely saw it as a kid. Like I'm a, that, I mean, I'm, I'm 38. I'm the same age as Abby. So like a nineties kid, I think it came out right as like, and I was like an, I wasn't a very good one. I think I'm like some of my athleticism most more had to do with like a deepened knowledge of my sexuality that wasn't ready to come out yet. So yes. like just being around a lot of girls. Yes. No, there's just a lot of it where you look back, you're like, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I wasn't great. I love being uh, on the bench. I'm like, I'm here for the camaraderie. Yes. <laughs> like you don't, you don't have to put me in coach. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Um, so, but I played all sorts of sports, but I loved softball again. Yes. But I, I loved, I loved to play. That was one thing I loved to play. Um, and I think, so I just always remember the movie, like watching it with my parents. Like, um, I think even like, that's one of those films like you just keep watching. And I think what, why it speaks so much to so many people. And I'm constantly surprised 
like still by the people who like love that movie. I was talking to, I think it was Patrice who plays Gracie um, in the show. And she's like, well, you know, black men love that movie. I was like, well, I did not know that black men love that movie, but that is interesting. I didn't know Uh, that either. We're just always finding these new pockets of people who are like, no, 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 no. They love that movie. Like I was, my wife is German and her, one of her best friends from childhood who's like 30 something German man. I've told the story a lot of times, but he's always just like, I love that movie. I would watch your show. Uh, And it's just so funny how it reaches. But I think, I think it has such a broad reach because so much of that movie is about kind of like being on the field when the world doesn't want you to sort of feeling other or different in some way. Um, but still sort of like, despite the challenges, going after your dream and finding a team, a community and being celebrated in that. Um, And I think that spirit speaks to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Like I always say like, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about this show and why I love it so much is like, I think in the movie, like a lot of people, I I, I felt like I could see myself in the movie and the beautiful thing about the show is now we actually get to put ourselves in the movie. Like, I don't have to right. imagine myself. I feel myself in the movie and I'm imagining myself on the field and I don't have to imagine it anymore. We are actually out there and we got to put ourselves in it. Who did you see yourself as the most? Oh, I don't know, actually. I don't think I saw myself as a person on the film because I'm like, I'm like, I'm not Dottie. I'm not Kit. Like, I think I, I'm probably like somewhere in the middle because I'm the older sister and I have okay. like the younger um, But I just felt, I think I saw myself more in the spirit of it and like yeah. wanting to be in the locker room and wanting to be on the field and wanting to just, especially because I was like a, like a, I'm, I'm biracial. My dad's black. My mom's white. I grew up in like the rural Midwest, but we were just like so other. And I wanted to just like be with a, with a group of me's yeah. And just get to like celebrate that. Yeah. And that so rarely happened. Any space I was in, I was always even like the oddball in some sort of type of way. I mean, not even to mention like queerness. Yeah. Um, so I think just like finding a community of yourself was just really something that was appealing. And I think is appealing to a lot of people. So you wrote episode three. I mean, you were in the writer's room for all the episodes, but this is the one that, that you're credited. I my name in. on it. Yeah. <laughs> And what was the working title of the episode? We, you know, it's funny. We didn't have any titles for any of the episodes until the end. We like, we sort of like, we're sort of like, what are we going to, I think we have working themes. Okay. Like, I think so much of this is like, this episode is sort of like finding, you know, Carson sort of standing up and finding a way to inhabit her voice, like Max standing up for herself too. So there's this sort of like the spirit of like, like using your voice to step into your dream. But we actually... Not until like very recently, because we were like going back and forth with like how we wanted to do episodes, um, titles, and then just ultimately ended up like it's like a baseball show. So it like made sense to like go with like baseball terms. Yeah. But we didn't actually have working. We didn't have titles, which is interesting. So we leave off on episode two with Max having a late night rendezvous with a woman at her mom's salon. So... I want to start off talking about episode three, just continuing the storyline with Max and talk Mm -hmm. about that world first before we get to Carson and everything, because this is such a big episode, I think, for Max in that the end of episode two, we we all kind of knew leading up to that point that she was hitting for our team, but, (laughs) but then you see it and you're like, yes, we're going to get some of this with Max. 
early on. Um, but there's a lot of uh, church in this episode, and it's revealed pretty quick that this mystery woman is the preacher's wife. Funny enough, also the title of one of my favorite films, also directed by <laughs> Penny Marshall. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that, the decision to have it be the preacher's wife. Well, well it's interesting. I think... Um it's funny that you're like, we all knew, like, I also felt like that way, but some, we did a lot of screenings with audiences and people like, be like, oh, what? And I'm like, really? This is I mean, like she was too cool with that, with that kiss to, just, to not be so, on the team. <laughs> no, I mean, which is really funny to watch at the end of that last episode with people's response. Like, like, Ooh, yeah. Like, I mean, I know it's a surprise that it's her, but we kind of all knew this was coming. Yeah. Uh, at least. I did. Uh, <laughs> even if I wouldn't have, wasn't writing the show. Um, yeah, the the character of Leah has, has sort of been like, there was a lot of different iterations. It's sort of the same spirit, but kind of a lot of different iterations of like her, uh, two things. I think number one with that relationship, sort of what we're trying to show with Max, because Max is always someone who's so compartmentalized. Yeah. And like, it like puts the pieces of herself separate because she she feels like they can't exist together. So we always talk about like you have, Max, like Max in the factory, Maxine at home with Tony. And then you have this queerness that's sort of separate. And it's like, she has to keep them apart. But the real way to like become a better person, not a better person, but to really sort of inhabit herself off the field and on and like sort of like on the mountain pitching is to bring those pieces of herself together. Yeah. Leah is sort of the, the pastor's wife is sort of an example of that. So she's just Max and sort of exploring her 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 sexuality, which I think is true of the times and and true of a lot of queer people in places where you're you don't have access to a queer community. You kind of find the one. Like there's yeah. like the one person. And so that was sort of what we were we we would like, were we gonna make her younger, older? Like and I and but like always what stayed constant is it is this person who sort of like has orbited in Max Max's world and sort of is like the one woman she found yeah who like somehow was like picking up what she's putting up and also with it being the pastor's wife and 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 you we in 102 it sort of dropped uh or sorry the second episode uh, the numbers were all weird, <laughs> weird Sony and Amazon had different numbers so in my head it's all like turned around um in the second episode it's like Tony says like she's in town for the revival we see she's important to Tony there is also the like part of the intention of the church there's almost like a I don't know if I would say it's like a self-destructive quality, but there's a risk in that. Like that, like I think subconsciously Max is trying to let her get her mom to see, right? Yeah. It's the pastor's wife. They're hooking up at the salon. Yes. There are all these things that feel really sort of unnecessarily, like taking unnecessary risks around these things. But but part of it is because I think sort of subconsciously Max so desperately wants her mom to see her and accept yeah. her. Um, and then as far as the tent revival, I think it, it was important. It was, it, this was um, a, a pitch from another writer, Infiniso, who's fantastic, who wrote episode, I believe, five. Um, but, you know, it was, it was something of the times and part of the Black community and church um, and the church at the times, and, and still is. I have right. a friend who's like Pentecostal in, in uh, New Orleans and has her own church, and they do tent revivals. Um, we just thought it was an interesting slice of like black culture and just culture in general. And I think one of the things I'm really proud of and we sort of advocated for is like people have to play catch up. Like we were like, oh, do we have to like slow down and explain what this is? And it's like, no, I think same similar with a lot of queerness. It's like if you know and you then, you know, if you don't know, like you got to play catch up. We're sort of dropping you into their world. Yeah. And the world is black, awkward and let everybody sort of like um, 
you know, come along to catch up to what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that was great to have that kind of being the theme throughout for Max's storyline for that episode, because we keep revisiting it for these important moments, one of them being where Clance passes out. And when I watch TV, I'm always watching and trying to figure everything out like, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. But as soon as they inferred that she's pregnant, I was like, she's pregnant. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So I did not see it coming, even though like then I watched it again. I'm like, duh, she faints when they're talking about all the black men being yes. drafted and oh, sent to war. You picked it up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm like, why was I so surprised when, when it happened? But like, yeah, as soon as the women are like, she's pregnant. I'm like, yes, they are very in love. And she probably is pregnant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that whole storyline, I mean, so many great things about it. The relationship between Guy and Clance, it's so beautiful. And I know it's like a little bit later in, in the episode, but when we have that conversation between Guy and Edgar, yeah, it's just the most... To, even though Edgar is kind of pulling Guy's leg, but we don't yeah. know it. It's just like the most tender like conversation. And I think like masculinity at its best. And we're we're getting that scene after all the, you know, the chumps at the screw factory letting uh, Max do all the work. Dove being toxic and like... Yeah you know, can't get over himself and whatever. And then this beautiful moment with, with the egg and it's just so devastating at the, at the end of the episode when Clance finally tells him about the draft and then the cut to the egg on the table, it killed yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. That killed me. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Um, in a couple of ways, I think number just, just the details, like being like, Oh, you picked all that up. Cause those, those were things that were like, I think in, in some of our episodes can be so full that some of the nuance of the story, because it moves so fast, especially the first few episodes, I sometimes right. worry are people picking up everything we're putting down. And even in that, we we had to cut it just because we didn't have the time to shoot it in production reasons. We, we had like a middle scene where we were sort of leaning more into the pregnancy where, where Guy is doing things like he's like trying to feed her her favorite food. Yeah. And she sort of freaks out and runs into the bathroom and shuts the door. And he thinks she's like, Throw, like you're like throwing up <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. pregnant like she she's she's crying i'm just i'll pitch it out because i loved it and we couldn't shoot it she's crying over a war and she's like crying at a comic and he's like what are you looking at what's wrong and it's like a weird war bonds ad or something yeah um, he's just like oh god in his mind he's like she's hormonal and oddly emotional right and then he tries to feed her like her favorite food to like make her feel better because she's not been feeling good and she runs into the bathroom, closes the door, um, and he thinks she's getting sick. And so it was like a yeah. So that it like that like you picked up like that that people are still able to pick up all on that with where some of like the connective tissue that we would love to have been there isn't is like exciting. Uh, yeah, and like I, I think a credit to to a couple of people. I mean, number one, Demizola Ekimelo, who is Clance pitched and was in the writer's room, pitched that. Like oh that was God. her idea. We are like, let's play with like a client story. How do you, and she's really, I mean, Femi's so incredibly talented. Yes. Um, but what she's what best in the writer's room, which is not what I do, because I'm a lawyer. I have very linear thinking. She's like, how about we turn it upside down? So she's like, what if, I just remember being like, what if Clance is hiding like a draft? I can't even remember how she pitched it. But at first I was like, what? 
She's like, what if guys draft letter, like she threw in the trash? What if she hit it? Like for weeks, I was like, what? For weeks. And she's just like, she, she's like avoiding it completely. It was, it was her idea. And it was like, oh yeah, that would be hilarious. Rather than doing this sort of like false pregnancy story this way, let's do it as like a cover for what's actually going on. Yeah. Um, and then Sanaz uh, Tusi, who wrote episode, uh, the seventh episode, uh, the, the, egg, the egg thing was hers and really sweet. But I think what is nice about that conversation with him, and I think what is nice about the show, at least for me, um, is like, it's not all like toxic portrayals of masculinity. Right. Like, we all experience that. Right. But like, we also like, I was raised by like a really strong, loving black father. Like a lot of us in the room have like really wonderful relationships with fathers, brothers, men in our lives that like, there can also be a spectrum of that. We don't just have to have like doves or like, right. like, no, no, no. Like, like Edgar is like a great guy, like Clanson and, and like Gary. Clans- Gary, Gary is like a good dude. I mean, this is so Kendall would lose his mind if this would like take off. He's like, I can't start it because I'm a straight guy. But we would always like when we were filming, we'd be like, hashtag justice for Gary. Yeah. He's such, he really is like, he's a good dude who is like really trying. Um, Right. I think like having sort of, we always try to take a really empathic lens to everybody on the show. And that includes like the cis straight dudes yeah uh, um and that doesn't mean sometimes they say awful stuff and painful stuff and sometimes they're not always great i mean even edgar edgar is like a great father who doesn't actually stand up for his daughter in moments to like tony he's right like, he does it when tony but, leaves the room <laughs> exactly and that is there's a cowardice in that yeah that is like that is like yeah he's loving but he won't do that and that is actually what max needs yeah um, and we get it, but but it's still really hard. Um, so I just think we, we just tried to make them, you know, I think with every character, and I mean, every writer ever does that, as, as multi, you know, as three-dimensional as possible. That's an interesting point, too, about Edgar, because she asks Leah, the preacher's wife, to tell Tony about the job at the screw factory. Instead of, you would think that she would go to her dad maybe in that scenario, but it's almost like she knows her dad wouldn't, <laughs> would be a definite no. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she wouldn't. And she's like, when she goes to Leah, cause it's like, so I think she asked her to like, tell my mom, like, I can't work at this salon. Tell my mom, like, I have to work for you. Like yeah. she's the hardest thing in the world for Max is cause that means like telling, like basically like disappointing her mother, like that business, like is such a thing for Tony. It's like her legacy that she's giving to, a legacy and a life and the love that she's giving to Max and to take another job is like a reject is Max rejecting that. It's the hardest thing in the world for her to do. Right. Um, which is why she's just looking for like anybody and any excuse not to have to be the one to, to do it. And I love, love the move of when she's on her way to tell her mom about the job that Tony shows her the sign in the window. I'm like, Oh, devastation. I mean, I know that that's good writing, just throwing those obstacles in front of the characters, but what a great one. I love that moment. And I mean, a couple of things like I, that's like one moment where I'm like, that's like myself in it. Like my mom always said that to me, like too much who is given much is expected. Yeah. It's like very high expectations of me. I felt like as a child, uh, that I didn't want to disappoint, but I just remember shooting it because we were like in Pittsburgh. It was like a night shoot. Like we did a lot of early night shoots, which were kind of difficult, but just like 
going to the salon and seeing the, it's so funny because you're, a, that's what I think is so interesting when you're making television, you're a part of every piece along the way, right? Like I helped, I wrote that scene and we like workshopped it. So a billion different ways, literally picked out the font for that sign. Like it was like, okay, we're going to do this font at the top and this font at the bottom. I picked the, like, we picked the colors out. Like, it's like you're a part of every piece and then you get there and you see it and it still gets you. Yeah. Like being the monitors watching it and just feeling like, not even on their faces. See, like this shot, like watching as they're turning towards it, you're like, oh God. Yeah. Because um, it is, it's just so devastating. I know. I I can't say enough about the the acting, but part of, I mean, everything works so well for me in this show because the great acting wouldn't be possible without the the great writing and then having these characters that are so like multidimensional and even if they don't get a ton of screen time, like you just... I don't know. I, I love Tony. I was telling Michelle, I, I'm kind of like team Tony. Uh, <laughs> my, my wife and I were fighting because Tony's like, why, why doesn't she just support her kids dreams? I'm like, you do not understand how hard she's worked. <laughs> like, well, I also think to the point of Tony, like, th- again, to the lens of empathy, Tony loves Max. Yeah. Easily. Tony has Tony. Everything she does is out of a lens of love. Like, and I mean, if you haven't seen, I mean, this happens in later episodes, so I won't say, I mean, you get more and more of a lens of it. Her, but like, I think I'm always like the, the pain is usually the gap between how someone loves you and how you need to be loved Yeah, because it's so shaped by your own experience. Tony's had a much harder life than Max. I think that's something that's, I feel like different people pick up, but like even the contrast between Max and Clance, Max comes from privilege. Max, right. like. Max's parents have money. She's grown up in a big house. Tony has, Tony, number one, Tony didn't. And she talks a little bit more about that. She's created a protective world for Max where she can be empowered, where sort of like kind of the horrors of the world can be kept out to as to the extent possible that she can sort of like create. That's what the business is. The business is power. Yeah. It's power. It's money. It's like, it's not having to like sort of in certain ways, subjugate yourself to a white world. It's, it's a love. And even from a, from a queer perspective, that is not something that feels safe in this world. Right. To, to still now. Yeah. And it feels really harsh the way she is sort of the way she is, she is trying to kind of keep Max away from that truth, but it comes from a place of love because I don't want, she's like, I don't want you to be in the world and be unsafe. Yeah. So let me protect you the way I know how. It just hurts a lot. Yeah. Because Max is so, so focused on baseball and pitching, as we know. Um, I do want to talk about Max getting the job at the screw factory and (laughs) the scene when she gets there. Did you write the screw screws speech <laughs> oh no that was actually will that was will okay that's real special <laughs> but it's funny it's, it was yeah and the guy who delivered it the, the actor delivered it whose name i'm forgetting he's really good in it yeah yeah i i love that bit of levity there but then he he says you know that he doesn't care can you lift 50 pounds, but he says, are you ready to get the shit burned out of your hands? Cause she's going to be working with liquid metal. I'm like, those are your, 
not only your pitching hands, but those are your lesbian lovemaking hands. Like <laughs> Max <laughs> is willing to do whatever she she has to. That's to when her- I real I'm like, wow, she's just really <laughs> tunnel vision on this pitching that she's willing to her her tool. She's willing to sacrifice her tools. Sacrifice her tools on a lot of different levels to to get her shot. She yeah. is. Cause she well, she's also so confident that that like this is her destiny. It's gonna work out. These obstacles, she will get through them. It is funny when we say it's obvious baseball is all she thinks about. And Gary's just like, is baseball all you think about? And it's like, yeah, Gary, yes. get with the yes, program. Yes. Like yes. you haven't gotten that by now, but then she's also damn Max. You're, you're so cruel because she leads him on and she gives, she's like, well, think of all the time we'll spend together. Like she does not give a shit <laughs> about. Well, I, yeah. I would say like in a middle ground with Gary, she does. I mean, she is like, there is a like, She's trying. I, I need to get what I want. Yeah. But I also think Max is in a space. I mean, that sort of comes later in the series where she actually thinks she can be like, que- like embrace her queerness in her life. Right. So like if, if she's gonna be with the guy, it would be Gary. Yeah. That's like her life. And, and she isn't in, in a space where like she feels like she can say that's not going to be my life. Right. Like she still is flirting with kind of like the Maxine of it all. And, and, and if it was going to be anybody that she would be with, if it would be Gary, because he is a he's a good guy. Yeah, and he's not in, he's not threatened by her. He's not intimidated by her. He likes her. He he likes her for who she is, and he supports her. Yeah. Um. So I think it it comes out a little bit laser focused, but that's everything Max does. But that's also because there's like she has to be that way in order to get her shot. Like no one is no one is there like the outside of like plants who is like going to what going to like read, write a letter into her comics to like <laughs> to, to let Max have a shot. The, it, it literally is the whole world against her. Yeah. She yeah. like has to believe in herself to such a high degree uh, and push herself to a high degree that sometimes it, it comes off a little sort of, I, I don't know if cruel is the right word, but it does come off a little like careless. Yeah. So we'll wrap up with that part of the story for now. Let's go back to the very beginning of the episode because this one opens on a dream. And I have to call out my wife here because anytime a show has a dream sequence, she's so thrown off and she's like, wait, what? What's it? I'm like, babe, it's a dream. (laughs) Don't worry. Because as soon as Greta appears, she's like, what's going on? I'm like, no, no, this isn't really happening. This is a fantasy. <laughs> but but tell me about that that choice to to open it with this threesome fantasy of like, that's the way to represent kind of like what's going on or to set up what, what Carson's going to be feeling in those regards. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that she, number one, it was until Greta showed up. Cause I was like, I like when you're writing stuff, you're like, are they going to feel like it's real when Charlie just shows up or is everybody going to know immediately it's a dream. Um, but I, I think for us, we wanted to, you know, it's different ways to sort of dramatize the struggle of what's going on in Carson's mind. Yeah. She isn't a new space of desire where she's kind of being pulled on both ends. Yeah. Um, and I think the fun of a threesome is like, how in your subconscious that can like intermingle. Yeah. Cause like, honestly, what Carson wants is to have it all right. That's why you see like Char- Charlie and Greta making out. 
like, cause like at first she's confused and she's like, no, maybe this can work. Like that's really what she wants. She wants right. to not have to make a choice. So we wanted to find a fun way to show that, which is like what the threesome was. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it that because I was wondering in this episode in particular, because the next thing she does is she's kind of weirded out by this dream, goes and has a conversation with Greta, who's being so gorgeous and flirty and uh, desirable and saying, like, let's just be friends and just only do friend stuff. And Greta's like, oh, and I'm like, OK, like, obviously, she still is into Greta, but like this question of like, how much is she really into Charlie? How much is this is fear based? There's just like so many things to weigh uh, yeah. that are going on. Well, I think what probably is missed with the modern lens of like coming into this is uh, what it feels like to sort of not be aware of your queerness. Cause I th- like to coming, coming into it. Right where Carson is because I think she's a person who just sort of was like, I don't have sexual, you know, like I love Charlie. And it's like, she sort of says it like, I, and it's like, you know, it's not like you get flutters in your heart right away. You kind of just like get close. Like you, you find someone and you become friends and it sort of transitions into love. This is the first time I think she's really feeling that sort of deep passion. Yeah. So, and it's, and it's freak. It, it is freaking her out because I don't, the queerness was not something that was really in her purview in this way. Yeah. And I know that probably feels shocking, but we were like talking to this at some point and I was trying to remember, like I grew up knowing no gay people. Like when I was trying to remember, I remember when I was like 17 where I was like, okay, I think this is happening, which feels a little late. And I could look back and be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Softball, this, that, right, right. this. But I can't think in my mind the first time where I knew what, gay was yeah I think it came a lot later in my life than I thought it did and I think for Carson this is really a whole new world right and it comes with sort of like I don't think it's fear it's just complete disorientation yeah that she's like I don't know like this is like all the things I don't know what's going on I just want to like put it back in the box like let me just like put it away and like Charlie and me and like whatever this is we can just like but but she's so drawn to it it can't be like okay Greta we're not talking or anything like that it's like let me try to like have Carson's always like in this way because she doesn't want to make a choice trying to have her take me to too I'm like well let me like we'll be friends like yeah we, we're like because I'm not she's not going to shut her out completely and we're at a point now in this series where we also still don't really know what Greta's deal is So this episode kind of takes us on a little bit of of a journey because uh, like, especially if you're, you're queer, you're still kind of feeling the sting from the pilot episode when she leaves with that guy (laughs) right after kissing her. So you're like, okay, is this something that she like does just for, for funsies? Um, Is she bisexual? Is she gay? But the guys are all beards. Like what is going on? with Greta and she like so easily accepts the like, well, I only have one real friend, so I guess I could use two, Um, which I feel like is, is a very relatable thing that you pretend that you, when somebody kind of like shuts you down and you feel rejection, you're like, Oh no, 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 this is fine. This is good. It's all good. We can just be friends. Oh yeah. I would love that. (laughs) Even though she's probably like, (laughs) um, and then they go on the date 
such a great scene. I love this scene so much. It was so well played. First, though, <laughs> so so the thing is, uh, somebody asks Greta on a date, but it has to happen indirectly. It happens through Beverly, the chaperone, um, yeah. and then Beverly has to go on on the date with them because of league rules. But then <laughs> Beverly comes and is indisposed because of her period. I'm like, damn, Beverly's still getting her period. <laughs> That's a funny. So many people said that I wrote that. That was like a last minute edition. I wrote that joke and people are like, she's still getting her period. I'm like, Beverly is still in it to win it. Yeah. Like, she's holding on to that part yes. of her femininity. <laughs> no, but, but I do love, I love that too, though, because it does seem, I'm like, why would that stop you from doing something? But I'm like, no, at that time, like yeah. there was so much stigma around and there still is around having your period it's like you can't be out in public if, if you're menstruating <laughs> i was reading uh oh god now i'm like forgetting who the the guy who like leonardo DiCaprio is in the aviator howard hughes and he used to like because he used to date a lot of um like starlets and he would be like he would like have be because he had like a studio it's like and we will put in your contract that like when you're you know, red lady comes, you need to take two or three days off. Like it was just like, so like, cause you're like obviously completely incapacitated. Yeah. No physically. Um, but I was just going to say to that, to, to all of that and the way it's played, I, I do think for Greta, there's like, Greta's not out and she's not in. She's just like, we'll see. You yeah. think you can friends? Why not? There's a, there's a game and a fun, which is just so inherently Greta. Yes. That like, She's like there to play. It's like, well, well, let's see how that goes. Let's have some fun here. And then also bringing Shirley onto the day. I'm like, yes, this is going to be an amazing scene. <laughs> I can't with Kate Berlin. Just <laughs> great. Kate's great. And yeah, the, I mean, Greta is just like, like a masterclass in making like she knows how to make people want her. She knows how to I don't want to necessarily say like manipulate, but she knows how to push buttons in the way that yeah. she pushes Carson's buttons and, and then calls her out in the bathroom as like, hey, I thought you just wanted to be friends. And it was like this date was just her like pressure testing and getting Carson to realize like I know you're full of shit <laughs> basically yeah, I mean I think for Greta I don't think Greta is like I mean you could look at it as I think there's a lot of different ways to look at her but you can look at it as manipulative which I think some of it does come off that way but you don't do that because you like because that's like your active choice I'm always right. like everybody's doing the best that they can and Greta is right. a person who's sort of found that as like her value so like that's what the world has told her is her value so she sort of leans into that leans into sort of like being like keeping people like cat tin on a hot roof, like sort of drawing you in in these sort of different ways yeah. um, as a way of kind of like engaging you in, in getting attention because that's what she needs. I don't think it's, it's not meant to sort and sometimes it's like, it's not meant to be in a bad way. Like we even, we had a discussion about this in the writer's room, even in the pilot of like how we all interpreted that those last moments with her where she's just like, I thought so. And then leaves with a man, yeah. which like is like, I mean, when you're watching, you're like, at least when I was, I'm just like, that's fucked. Like, but, but also there's a way to see it where she like sees something in Carson and it's like, I'm going to open your eyes. Right. Like I'm going to bring this out of you. Cause like, you're not going to be happy until you sort of realize all the pieces of you and you might not even like, which I think is true. Of course you don't even know right. like that's there and I can see it. So let me like 
tease it out. There is sort of a kind kindness in that. And, and I think the date is an escalation because part of what irks Greta is Carson is like now pretending, but she says to her, I think after they win their first game, Carson like pushes away and is like, I'm normal. Yes. So she says, I'm not like you. I'm normal, which is the, I think like the worst, the most hurtful thing you could say. It's not, I'm not gay or I'm not into women. It's It's that there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Oh, and that, and that is where the date comes out of because Greta is like, okay, like, let's like, whatever, Carson, you want to try to be friends? Let's see what I'm like. I'm down for the ride. Yeah. But the more Carson tries to pretend this is like a Greta thing, not a me thing, like not a them thing. Yeah. um, It just irks her more to the point where Carson, like, and like kind of not being able to handle this, handle this, like does that really cruel, like says that really cruel thing. And Greta's like, Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Like, if you you punch me, I'm going to punch back. And that really is what the date is. It's like, okay, you're so normal. Let's see how normal you are. Come right. sit here and show me how not like me you are. Because that is, I mean, you, you see it in in the scene afterwards where, where Carson finally admits that she has feelings and Greta says like, finally, right. Like she needed that. Like that is like, cause, cause Carson hurt her. Yeah. And Carson says, you know, you kissed me. I was just fine. And she's like, no, you weren't fine. Like, obviously you weren't fine. It goes back to like that Greta's see someone who needs this kind of help and sure she gets something out of it too but you know she's kind of like helping her along and Carson it's almost like someone who's just like not in therapy and they're like oh I was fine until I went to therapy and now I have all these issues and it's like well no those were all there you were just (laughs) well and it's also real part of the reason we put that in that was like a real attitude of the times like when when we're in some because it was a lot of like married women who you know would queer relationships or things are like relate what however but some of the pullback snapback attitude was sort of that like this woman came in and like seduced me she did this to me like right. and that was also there was like a male sort of a toxic like masculine perspective on that it was like yeah this was something that was like done to you and you just need to get back we need to like what whether it's conversion therapy or, or um like uh, and like whatever sort of treatment it's like we need to get you back like this was done to you and we need to like fix you back to normal normal in quotes so they have the, this conversation it ends again with this i'm not like you greta says yeah i guess you aren't and then when we have the two of them together again it's at the end and there's this call with charlie and Tell me more about what's going on with Charlie, because I was trying to unpack. I'm like, is Charlie into it? What, like he asked for additional leave before coming home? Is is he also wanting like a little space to figure stuff out outside of his merit? What's happening? Right. Well, uh, two things. First to the like when when Carson's like, I'm not like you. And Greta's like, I guess not. Like it that's supposed to. It's sort of sad because because what Carson is really saying is I'm like, not brave like you. I can't just like throw it all like up in the air and into the wind and like be inhabit who I am. I'm yeah. still too afraid. And Greta's like, I see that. It's like it's actually really sad. Yeah. Because if they both, if 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 Carson could be like Greta, like they could 
like be together and probably be pretty happy. But there's a lot of like growth that has to happen on, I mean, not just on Carson's part to sort of get there, but to the Charlie call. I mean, I think the Charlie, the hint that is you will see more of later in the season and kind of you see him in a military hospital. He is he's lying and they're both lying to each other. OK, that's what I was wondering, because then they go to the hospital. I was like, wait, like did something happen? Like what's going on? I'm like so many follow up questions. Yeah, I mean, okay. that's what you're supposed to feel yeah. in, in the conversation is like, really, they're both they're having this like sort of like. And it's interesting because I think it kind of says a lot about their dynamic. Yeah. Where they're both sort of having this conversation that's full of like lies of omission. Yeah. Like they're not really being, I mean, I guess Charlie is full on lying and I guess Carson is sort of too, but they're not being honest with each other. Yeah. So Charlie is saying he's on leave, but you see like he's at a hospital that doesn't look like he's off having fun, having leave. And he's not. And you'll find out more about that later. And same with Carson. But then I'm wondering, so then what is it from that conversation? I mean, I guess a, a couple things, but to, to Carson, if she's accepting this as truth of like, okay, he's on leave. And then is it part of it that she feels like, well, then maybe I'm off the hook a little bit. He hasn't gotten the letter. He's kind of doing his own thing. So I should do my yeah. own thing. And then the thing about wanting to like, basically like live life to the, the fullest and not waste any time is almost like a pep talk for, for her that she takes right. to, to Greta. The, yeah. I think all of those things, I think the sort of like, yeah, like he's kind of doing number one, didn't get the letter. Right. Okay. Feels like that's out of the clear. So like, I don't have to be worried about being because like, how else is she going to be exposed here to Charlie? Right. Um, I think number two, yeah. It's like, Oh, he's like, kind of off doing his own thing and like doesn't seem to like care how that affects me I think that also feels like a little bit off the hook it's like oh well then it's fine that I came here and maybe I can do my own thing yeah and then just lastly like yeah like and and in that saying like I want to like adventure I want as much life as possible like let's do this to Carson is like yeah I do too and it feels sort of like kind of almost like tacit permission yeah. for Carson to just step into who she is, step into this experience and step who, into who she is. But in a way where it's like, okay, he's off doing his thing. I'm going to do my thing. We'll both live our lives to the fullest and then we'll come back and be Carson and Charlie. Yeah. Like we'll both go back to like living our lives together, but like, let's sort of enjoy this time. And I think for Carson does a little bit like, let me get this out of my system. And then rookie move, Carson leads Greta to that shed where Lupe ices her arm. That's, yes. come on. <laughs> Carson, she needs to learn. This is yeah, like, yeah, which yeah. she will if you watch the next episode. Right. Talked to, right. If you watch the next episode, you'll see she has, she has like, there are rules. And she doesn't know them yet. I'm scarred from the pilot with Max popping out. I'm like waiting for, for Lupe to be in the car. I see her arm or something. I'm like, well, I think there's so much to that, that like we play to different degrees and we, we could have done more. It's like when you are a straight person yeah. and you do not have to think about the way you operate in the world. Yeah. You're just like not as aware. Right. Of face of what you're showing the way you like, I said I lived in Mississippi with my wife and we were so hyper. We had lived in Boston. We got married in Boston and like gay. I mean, not that Boston's a gay Mecca, but Massachusetts is the first place to have, to have gay marriage. And the first place where I could have for my children, they had parent and parent. So I could just be on the birth certificate for my daughters rather than having to like adopt, request your yeah. court, et, cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so when we were in Mississippi, it's like, oh, we have to kind of be, be mindful of everything yeah. in our space because it was a very conservative place. Um, and we were just like the only gay people. It's like, okay, let's like, okay, I can't hold your hand. Like, let's not sit too close. Like just a lot of different things. And I think for Carson, she is coming into understanding that and she doesn't know it yet. Yeah. Speaking of Lupe, let's quickly, I know we're winding down on time, but the, the Lupe dove, the, the whole thing that that's going on there the private practices, Lupe being left out. There, there's just like so much happening for poor Lupe. And, and she's, t- is she taking it out on, on Esty or is she just like frustrated that the one Spanish speaking person has the personality of Esty and that's just like yeah. not her vibe. <laughs> like, Well, I think and that, I mean, there's a couple of different things. I mean, the Esty thing, there is an added layer to that, but if audiences keep watching, they'll understand yeah. as we get sort of into the, the back half of the season. But so much of like Lupe is, and we're stepping into kind of the pressure of being the Spanish striker, which is a story of like, listen, the league didn't have, have black players, but there were like Latin players, but they had to be white passing. Right. And that is really hard and confining. Uh, and Lupe is very aware that like who she is, is not acceptable to this league. Yeah. So like she has to contort herself, which is part of the aggravation with Esty of like with the Spanish and with those things. It's kind of a reminder of the pieces of herself that she doesn't get to be. Yeah. And like, and a reminder of sort of the way that she has to, I guess, like conform. It's like, I can't speak Spanish. I can't like talk or celebrate in these sorts of different ways that it, it is irksome because a reminder of pieces that you're giving up. So that, I think there's some of that dynamic between her in addition to like sort of the other layers. And with the dub of it all, this is like the first time she's ever been a star. This is like the first time she's ever had the spotlight and she's really willing to do, and and sees that as her value. Again, because she's been told by the league who she is, is not palatable. Yeah. So she's just kind of doing everything she can to stay on that mound and to stay in that sun, which is like, which pushes her to the point, like you see in the episode of injury, like listening so hard to Dove because that acceptance, that spotlight just means it so much to her that she'll do anything to keep it. Yeah. And it's, it's like, she won't take shit from anyone on the team, but then when it comes to Dove, she's just like, okay, I'll keep trying this fork, <laughs> fork pitch. Well, because it's like, it, I mean, I think we've all been in those different ways. It's like majority acceptance, Right. right? There's this white male major league player who's the coach, who's like so like venerated signing autographs and he sees something in me. Yeah. Like I want that despite what it costs. And I think you you want it so badly that you, you lose perspective on sort of the fact that you are isolating your team, that it is injuring you, like yeah. all these things because you want that. Like it's, it's a form of love, right? So much. You will do anything to keep it. It's like the way lesbians feel about astrology. <laughs> they want to believe in it so much that they'll bend every single thing <laughs> to make it true. I love that it all comes back to that. All right. All comes back. I'm going to wrap up here by asking you just a, a bunch of questions that we're asking at the end of every episode. But next one for you, because you are a writer on the show. Who is your favorite character to write for? 
Ooh, my favorite character to write for that is, I think it's Jess. Jess. Jess is actually, Jess doesn't say a lot. So what Jess says is really like always really powerful. Um, and Kelly, like if you watch any scene, Kelly is playing Jess. Kelly's one of the actors who like had like a 15 page bio that she wrote about Jess. Kelly is um, playing Jess start to finish. One of my favorite things, uh, it's in the last episode um, in two where Dub is like, well, you can't catch like a steelhead by throwing like sand sh- shrimp or something. I don't know. Some, and everybody's like, huh? And Jess is just like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> she just like shakes her head like, obviously. Um, I think Jess is my favorite. Yeah. The paycheck scene, the yeah. I don't trust paper money. I'm like, what you're expecting like a bag of loonies, but uh, yeah. loonies weren't around then anyway. Uh, but I do... Great answer. Uh, okay, next question. There's no crying in baseball, but there is in watching this show. What was the most emotional scene of this episode for you? Uh, I mean, when Max... The, I, I, it's probably a tie between the sign and when Max tells her mom. I think the, Ma- the Max telling her mom is really the scene that makes me cry because it's just so painful for her to do. Yeah. For, for me, it was definitely when Clance says, what are we going to do? In the conversation, oh, that's a good one too. That's <sighs> true. That one is very painful as well. I just lose it, and, and then again, that shot to the egg because it makes you realize that for days, guy has been probably like excited, but excited and proud. Yes. Like he's starting a family. This is going to be a new chapter for him, and then gets hit with like the worst news that he could get, and like this fantasy that he's like built in his mind is not happening. Yeah. It's just tragic. Um, who was the MVP of this episode for you? Ooh. I mean, I would probably say Bemi because Bemi both played that storyline so well and basically came up with it. <laughs> yes. Clance, often uh, an MVP for me in these episodes. Were there any strikes for you? Like any, any misses, anything that didn't play out quite the way you wanted or anything that didn't get included that you wish had? Uh, I think that scene, like I said, with the pregnancy with the egg, yeah. was really funny yeah. and would like help support that storyline. Um, I feel like, I don't know if this was like a miss on screen, but like the tent revival was like, just like our, I, I don't it was so difficult. It was just like one of those things where you're like, oh, this is just going to hang over us. So we, we shot, we had to, we had because we had like rain delay issues we had to piece it up in so many different ways. It looks seamless. Like when you're watching it, you're like, yep, that was when we shot outside in the day. And that's when we set it up behind the stages at night, but made it look like day. Oh, wow. And like, yeah. Why well, I just have this distinct memory where it's like, we need to get this. And we had like a half an hour left and a fire alarm was like, we were outside, but there was a fire alarm that somehow shut down everything. And we're just like, whatever guys god is just cursing us because he doesn't want us to do a tent revival on the super gay show so that was the thing that was like i don't it was i don't know if it was a strikeout on screen but i just like when i'm watching it i can i can see all the pieces we couldn't get because it was so difficult to shoot so for me i guess that was a little bit of a strike because i would have liked to see more of that world yeah i i think it worked well on screen i don't think there there was i wouldn't have known that there were issues with that and then last question, what was the home run for you of this episode? Oh boy, what is the home run? That is a hard question because I love so much of it. I don't know what the home run is, but I do really think I remember being on, I think it really plays on screen. That moment when Greta says finally yeah, after like the date 
Um, I mean, the Lincoln, whole you miss it. Really, yeah, it's so, I mean, again, but it's so good. There are other movies, there are other moments I really love and make me emotional. I think that one is in a lot, like the way the egg story is, it's yeah. like kind of very surprising. Yeah. Because that date scene is so fun and Greta seems so empowered. Yeah. But that moment, it's just like a really small moment, but it's Greta's vulnerability. And Darcy played it so well, where she just like, she needed Carson. Greta doesn't say she needs anybody or anything but she needed Carson to, to admit that she had feelings. Yeah. And extra innings, anything else that you want to say about this episode? Is there like a quick behind the scenes, fun story or, or something that you think that fans of the show would love to know? Oh my gosh. I have a fair, I mean, I have like, an, a I'm like I have all the stories in my mind. <laughs> I'm like trying to think start to finish where I, uh, I'm like thinking about that date. I was like, you want a behind the scenes thing. That date was so funny because we couldn't find like a right period restaurant. So we made it in someone's office at our stage. So it looks fantastic, <laughs> but it's literally in our line producer's office. Yes. And we had, to make, we had to make that bathroom in the Peaches house. Like we had two different stages. We had a full stage of like the Peaches, the bottom of the Peaches up to the stairs. Yeah. Um, and then we had another set that is like the peaches upstairs and we had to shove the bath. I think that bathroom is like between it's like Carson and Shirley's like one wall behind Carson and Shirley's room. Amazing. Love that. Well, Desta, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Uh, I enjoyed every second of this and I'm sure people are going to really enjoy listening and that that's the thing with this show. I just feel like it deserves this level of conversation because you are able to pack so much into each episode without it feeling like too much. But then you, when you reflect awesome. on, back on it, you're like, whoa, all of this happened in one episode and it, it works so beautifully. So, um, you know, thank you for your service <laughs> okay. for, for writing on the, the gayest show on TV right now. And we tried, we tried to make it as gay as we possibly could. Ugh, not unnoticed and just <laughs> just so appreciated. Do you want people to follow you on social media or? I don't really. That's yeah, not okay. a thing I really care that much about. I mean, they okay. can find me. It's just Desta Tedros Ruff at uh, Instagram and, and Twitter. I'm, I'm not much of a poster, so it really is not something that's... Any projects you want to plug or anything or just keep watching no, the show? No, I think just, to, just keep people watching the show. Keep um, leaving reviews, I think, yes. is like an... We, we we went through like a, a a spat of being like trolled pretty hard yep. online of people just giving like By very happy reviews. people very people yes. who are doing well in their lives that they had yes, a exactly one star review so just leaving a review like watching get your friends to watch we really want to have the opportunity to have a season two and the more people are talking about it the more they're supporting it. Um, the more likely that is to happen. Yes. Let me know who I need to bake a pie for to get that season <laughs> two. I'll do it. All right. Thank you so awesome. much, Desta. Take care. Yep. Bye. bye. And that's a wrap on our recap for episode three. I hope to see you back here for episode four. We're going to have Michelle Badillo who wrote episode four. So if you like this episode, I'm sure you'll like that one as well. You can follow this podcast on Instagram at League of Their Own Recap Pod, where I'll be posting in the stories lots of fun stuff there. Make sure that you rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, 
Spotify. Leave a review if you're feeling generous. Getting people to listen to this podcast and keeping the excitement going is going to help us make sure we get a season two. Be sure you also leave a review for this show on Amazon Prime. I really, really, really want and need a season two of this show. So the more we recommend it to people, the more we get people to stream it, the better chance we have of that happening. You can also follow my personal Instagram if you want at TGI Carolyn. And if you want another podcast to listen to, hey, I host another one. It's called Diking Out, uh, along with comedian Melody Kamali. It's a lot of fun. We talk to a lot of great people, including people that you've heard on this podcast as well. Check it out. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you at the next episode. Take me right back to the track.